welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name's Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, for coming back. I would normally do my little spiel for Counterpunch here, but we're very limited on time, and I've had so many technical issues to deal with in the last uh, week to ten days that I just want to kind of get to a very, very, very important discussion that I had recently. I'm very... um, touched by a lot of what I've uh, read from activists and organizers around uh, issues related to immigration and migration and refugees and legal status and all of these other issues that, of course, are at the fore now with the uh, the fascist uh, in the White House and, of course, bringing once again into relief all that Obama did during his time to continue the deportation machine and to build the infrastructure and all of that. But of course, plenty of time to have more in-depth analysis of that topic today. Um, So with that out of the way, I want to talk with my guest today. I'm so happy to have him on the show uh, to talk about what I think is probably one of the defining issues of this historical moment. Um, Ali Wayne is on the show today. He is a member of the Committee for the Black Immigration Network. He's also a peace activist with the Syri- Syracuse Peace Council. You should uh, follow him on Facebook as well. He's his content really is excellent. Ali, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Welcome. Glad to be here, and I'm very glad to have you. So. Um, I want to talk, obviously, about the immigration question, the what's going on at the border, the Trump policy, all of these things. But before we do that, can you just uh, introduce yourself a little bit to us, who you are, where you come from, and how you come to do this work that you do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, uh, you know, this is very personal to me. I'm an undocumented organizer, and uh, like a lot of undocumented people, um, this, you know, these past couple of years have been very hard. And uh, uh, like a lot of undocumented activists, I came out to my community publicly as an undocumented person here in Syracuse with a press conference back in uh, 2012, I believe it was, uh, because we started to realize how incredibly disingenuous the information uh, was that was coming out in the media about undocumented people and our struggles. But one of the reasons that I decided to come out as an undocumented person is that I realized that as bad as my situation was, I was actually on the privileged side of the undocumented conversation. And that is because I was brought here legally when I was uh, nine years old. And uh, my mother brought me here first on a diplomatic visa. She used to work for the United Nations. Um, And then I switched that visa from a diplomatic visa to a student visa to finish my high school years and to to begin my schooling. I did two years at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, But then, unfortunately, my mother ended up uh, passing away. Uh, She raised my sister and I as a single parent. And uh, I found myself pretty much stranded with, you know, no home to go back to but no ability to work here because I was on a student visa, which eventually, unfortunately, obviously then uh, expired. And I became a part of the undocumented sort of community. And this was way back in 1996, which predates obviously a lot of this, this activism. But what I mean by saying that I am one of the privileged undocumented people is that because I came here legally, uh, I actually have a very long but arduous path to citizenship. Uh, My sister was finally able to become a U.S. citizen, and uh, she sponsored me for a green card about seven years ago, I believe. 
uh, under the current system, I have another three year wait uh, to hear back from the government as to whether or not I can, um, you know, get a green card. And then if I'm lucky enough to get that green card, I have another five year wait uh, to see if I uh, if I can become a, a U.S. citizen. So let's be clear. I was brought here when I was nine years old legally. I am currently 41 years old under the current system. If I'm lucky, uh, I might might get citizenship around for around the age of 49 and 50. And I am lucky because I have an entryway into the legal process, whereas a lot of people who are undocumented, who are, you know, quote unquote, brought here illegally are people who literally do not even have a pathway to become citizens. They don't have a pathway to be legal. So you often hear you know, this propaganda about like, why don't these people, you know, get in the back of the line? Why are they trying to cut through the line or whatever? Well, the reality is for uh, a majority, I believe, of undocumented people, there literally is no line for them. I have a friend of mine from South Korea. He was brought here when he was um, a year old. He is, I believe, 34 years old right now. Uh, and as absurd as it is, there is literally no legal pathway for him to become a citizen under the current system right now. Uh, and so that's that's just the highlight, you know, the fact that, uh, that the system really is broken, that, you know, when you hear stories about people saying, you know, oh, you know, it's so easy to become a citizen, just take a test or pay this fee and everything's going to be fine. That's not true. The immigration system is extremely complex to navigate. And, uh, you know, when I joined this movement and I became more public, it was to serve a purpose, which was to explain the complexity of the system and to put it in the broader context of America's, um, you know, relationship with immigrants, you know, throughout its history. Absolutely right. And um, it's it's really, I think, uh, important to hear that story that you just told us because of exactly as you mentioned, the propaganda that you hear, particularly, you know, you get this right wing propaganda about, well, if they would just come here legally, there wouldn't be a problem. Well, it's it's not so simple. And the fact of the matter is that uh, legal and illegal becomes somewhat irrelevant when you're talking about their very survival. And that is ultimately what we're talking about, particularly in the context of those people coming from Central America uh, to the border today, but it's bro it's true broadly of many immigrants from many different countries that attempt to come into the United States because they are fleeing for their lives, for their safety, or even just for the uh, for a future for their children. And so, um, you know, I think it's important. And, and the second thing I just want to mention, I want to get your comment on this. One thing that strikes me in your comments uh, just now is the fact that you're talking about a system that well predates Donald Trump. So we're not talking about a Donald Trump problem here, although it's obviously escalated under him. We're talking about a systemic or an endemic and institutional problem, aren't we? Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, once I really started to um, think about the system and... Um, and sort of its mechanisms and how it developed, I realized that I actually became undocumented uh, the year that really sort of kickstarted what I think of as the deportation machine, which was 1996. Uh, 1996 was when uh, Bill Clinton passed um, a set of laws that uh, I think the acronym is IRA IRA. I don't have the <laughs> the mind to to remember exactly what the acronym stands for right now, but but Bill Clinton. Uh, under the rubric of fighting terrorism made the immigration system much harsher. 
you know, he he took away uh, discretion from immigration judges so that their hands are tied and they can't make individual uh, decisions uh, in terms of individual cases. You know, before 1996, immigration judges were able to take a look at individual cases and talk and think about, you know, well, is this person really a danger to the community? Do they have long ties to the community? Do they have U.S. citizen children, families, all of that? Uh, after 1996, all of that was scrapped away. And uh, and then things got worse. You know, 9-11 uh, obviously happened. And 9-11 was, um, I mean, I specifically remember where I was when 9-11 happened. I was in Chicago at the time. Uh, and I remember watching the videos of that horrific event, uh, you know, happening as they were playing out. And I remember having this these two... Um, very strong takes and emotions on this. The first one was the human, you know, reaction, which was, you know, I couldn't believe that I was watching, you know, this level of, of um, violence. Um, I couldn't believe, I was heartbroken at the amount of grief that the, the victim's families were going to go through. Uh, it was horrific to watch. And even as someone who studied foreign policy and who understood that as sad as it was, I, I could understand why this this event happened. In fact, uh, uh, I had been reading um, a book called uh, Blowback, uh, which was uh, about uh, the U.S. military empire and the fact that the U.S. military empire's tentacles across the world was eventually going to cause some kind of like domestic uh, violence, um, I mean, domestic terrorism event. And so I was kind of, I had the frame of mind to understand why 9-11 happened, but I was also heartbroken. But going back to what I was saying before, the second emotion that I had was, you know, and it was this thought, I was just like, okay, this country is going to become extremely murderous <laughs> now. Now, its foreign policy is going to get extremely violent, and uh, my life as an immigrant is going to get much harder and the life of my uh, especially Muslim friends are going to get much harder. And I wish I wish that I had been wrong on this, but unfortunately that's what happened. And the immigration services, which had previously been called the Immigration and Naturalization Services, uh, all, of, all of a sudden they changed that into, you know, what we now know of as the Department of Homeland Security. And, uh, and and that's when the immigration conversation got sort of intimately tied to the quote-unquote national security conversation. And the war on terror in many ways became a de facto war on immigrants. Um, and that's just, you know, it's one of those follow-the-money things, right? Like in the sense of 9-11 was, was an awful event that happened. But, you know, to be clear, there aren't that many people willing in the world willing to cause that level of violence, you know, uh, to this country. So how do you justify sending so much federal money to the Department of Homeland Security? Well, it's very simple. The, the way that you do so is to uh, deport as many immigrants as possible and call that national security. So people who for many years, you know, um, were just kind of living their lives, you know, farm workers, service workers, you know, people who were just trying to make a living. All of a sudden, the sort of national security eye got trained on them and they began to be deported in unconscionable rates. And so, and that deportation machinery just kept increasing and increasing and increasing all the way up to Obama. 
And to be honest, the Obama years were just as bad as the Trump years for, I would say, the first six years of that administration. Um, the last two years of the Obama years, things started to slow down, and that's because of the amazing organizing that immigrants and their allies have been doing across the country. Um, but unfortunately, you know, now we're back to, you know, Obama having handed a very well-honed deportation machinery, uh, immigration enforcement machinery to um, a president who is absolutely, you know, excited <laughs> to kind of train his cruelty on immigrants right now. And, and to be clear, and I want to focus specifically on Obama here, one of the things that is very confusing about what's happening right now is that you're seeing a lot of uh, conflation of family separation and, and family detention. And, and we have to, to, to take a pause here and make some distinctions. Um, one of the things that is heartbreaking, but that I think a lot of liberals you know, really need to understand is that family detention of immigrants really sort of was established you know, by the Obama administration back in 2014 uh, during the rush of the last um, um, quote-unquote refugee crisis that happened. Um, in fact, family detention would have been expanded under the Obama administration were it not for activists who sued that administration to get immigrant children out of detention um, because, you know, for for um, humane reasons, of course. Uh, in 2014, the United Nations called out the, the Obama administration for its treatment of, of uh, immigrant families in detention. But sadly, it didn't get anywhere near as much um, you know, attention as uh, as what we're seeing right now. So I want to be clear, you know, things are worse under Trump. They are significantly worse. That being said, the Obama administration and all the administrations before contributed to where we are now. And we are in a very uh, dangerous moment right now where some people, both Republicans and Democrats, are are happy with family detention being the status quo, being the sort of the new normal. And that is something that we have to fight against with all our might. You know, we have to 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 stake out the claim that family detention is just as inhumane and that we do not need these cages, you know, to be to be secure uh, as a country. No doubt about it. An interesting point that you made about Obama. You made a bunch of interesting points, actually. Um, but the point you made about Obama and the timing of uh, Obama's kind of easing, uh, I guess you could say easing up a little bit on the deportation machine being 2014, because I read a couple of accounts, including one, I, I'm just, I'm blanking on his name right now, but he did a whole long thread on Twitter about the time that he actually met and spoke with Obama. And he said that Obama, Obama, Obama was kind of, you know, walking down the line, shaking hands with a bunch of different people, and he was standing there, and he demanded an answer from Obama about family detention and family separation, and he said that Obama stopped and looked at him and asked him point blank, are you an immigration attorney? And the guy, when he said, yes, I am, 
Then Obama's face turned sour, and he gave this long explanation about why it was important, etc., etc., etc. Anyway, the upshot of this narrative that this person was 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 uh, was retelling was the fact that he said Obama was only concerned not with the immigrants and the families; he was concerned with the perception and his legacy. That in the last two years of his presidency, he didn't want to be known and remembered as the deporter in chief. But the reality is that. Obama's administration was just as vicious and just as cruel as the Bush administration that came before it. And I, I think that that's an important point. But the other point you made, Ali, and I think it's critical too, and some leftists, I think, fall into the trap of saying, well, Obama was doing it too. Well, yes, he was, but the machinery has been ginned up to such a degree of cruelty under Trump and the Trump administration that I think we're at now a new level. I would, I would almost call it, uh, you know, sort of a fascist style immigration policy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this is, I mean, you know, you're talking to someone who has written about how awful the Obama administration, you know, has been, who has called out the administration. Uh, the Obama administration throughout the entire eight years. This is new. This is worse. You know, um, it's heartbreaking to say, but th th there is a departure. You know, in fact, I think it was just yesterday uh, the president had a press conference, a press conference in which he uh, detailed the the stories of of people who had been, uh, you know, killed or in some way violated by undocumented immigrants. You know, let's be clear, you know, this is to me, that is fascist propaganda. This is I mean, this is literally what Hitler did in order to um, to sort of use propaganda against the Jews in the beginning of, of sort of, um, you know, World War Two. Uh, that's what he did is he he started to have these um, these these press events where he detailed the crimes of, of uh, Jews you know, back then in order to gin up, you know, just sheer anger and hatred at at all Jewish people. And I think it's the same thing that's happened with immigrants right now, not to minimize, obviously, you know, the pain of these families, but every single study that's been made around the issue of immigration has shown that undocumented immigrants commit crimes at much lower rates than U.S. citizens. And that's for something that's very simple. And I can attest to that as an undocumented immigrant myself. If you're an undocumented immigrant, the last thing you want to do is have any encounter with the police or any encounter with law enforcement, because you know that that could result in your being detained and kicked out of the country. You know, many of the people who are being uh, deported right now, they're, they're being deported for things like driving without a license, when usually they don't even live in states where they have access to having driver's licenses. Uh, you know, I'm, I know people who are undocumented immigrants who are afraid to go to the doctor's office because they think that somehow that might link them to the government in some way and might, might get them in danger. So the idea that like an undocumented immigrant who's just trying to scrape by and trying to live their lives would go out of their way to like make themselves known to the authorities by committing some kind of crime is is absurd but trump is weaponizing that in a way that previous administrations did not you know and he started to use the terms you know infestations of, of immigrants you know vermin i mean all of that language is fascist you know language and i'm someone who has really sort of over the many years of, of being an activist i have 
you know, sort of poo-pooed, you know, people sort of using the kind of fascist analogies and talking about Nazi Germany and all of that stuff. Eh, well, not so much now. <laughs> you know, now I'm seeing too many signs. I really think that this is a time that is testing the soul of this country, that if U.S. citizens are serious about this land being um, a land that is still, you know, inviting to immigrants, then they need to stand up and they need to fight in the same way that a lot of us undocumented organizers have been fighting for many, many years. You know, uh, I get very frustrated, to be honest, when I hear U.S. citizen allies talk about, you know, well, there's nothing we can do and this is so exhausting and, you know, it's too much. I can't handle it. Well, that's true. But, you know, I have plenty of friends who are undocumented organizers who have, you know, uh, engaged in sit-ins, gotten themselves arrested on purpose in order to infiltrate detention centers, gotten themselves deported uh, in their organizing, trying to fight the system. They are people who are exhausted and angry and tired as well, but they've stood up to this system at, at great, great risk. I think that it's time for U.S. citizens to start taking some of those risks as well. I could not possibly agree more with that sentiment. All right, um, let's uh, let's take a quick break. Um, on the other side of the break, I want to talk about the specifics of uh, what's going on at the border now, and I also want to talk about the the myopic view that a lot of people take about this issue, as if U.S. policies internationally don't impact all of these issues, which of course they do. We're going to talk about U.S. foreign policy, U.S. economic policies, how they relate to all of this, and so much more. Come back after the break for the rest of my conversation with Ali Wayne. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back. And so 
black beater And some of them say them a black stabber And some of them say them a paki basha Fascists and the top over the world Fascists and the top, we will fight them Fascists and the top, then we will counter attack Fascists and the top, then we drive them Ali, I want to return to our conversation and um, some of the points that you were making earlier, which I think are really salient about the risks that undocumented uh, activists take in order to force this issue into mainstream conversation. And I I 100% agree that, uh, you know, U.S. citizens who consider themselves allies of this movement absolutely need to start taking more risks and more responsibility into themselves to put themselves on the front line. So, Um, With that said, though, one of the things that I wanted to touch on with you is the fact that most people who talk about this issue, including many people who get really upset about it, I'm thinking of liberals in general, they're not able to connect this immigrant, uh, uh, well, this immigrant issue with the broader question of U.S. foreign policy and U.S. economic policy. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of making that connection and how difficult it is to get people to think in those terms? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. You know, before I started to focus specifically on immigration, uh, I was uh, an anti-war activist specifically. And so I'm someone who thinks about U.S. foreign policy um, just because I'm interested, you know, in it. And I think that, um, you know, you can't think about immigration without thinking about the impact of of U.S. foreign policy. Um, You know, we caused many of these crises. It is not a coincidence that some of these countries, um, you know, that we intervened in, such as, for example, Honduras or El Salvador, are countries which we, um, that, that the U.S. has intervened in. And are are countries, I'm sorry, where people are are now sort of coming into the country. And, um, you know, you take, say, Honduras, for example. Um, I remember being at a a protest uh, called the School of the Americas protest back in 2009. It's a protest that I think still happens every year around uh, the the fact that there's this school in Georgia that trains um, Central American and uh, South American military forces to go back to their countries and unfortunately wreak havoc. Yeah, that that, was, that that protest, I believe, still goes on every year, and it's organized by School of the Americas Watch. Uh, yeah. And I believe it. Uh, they go down to Georgia and they do the protest. I think they're still doing it this year. Yeah, I think that's still happening. Uh, but I remember going to that in 2009, and that was around the time that the, a right-wing military coup was happening in Honduras. And we were hearing... You know, when I was there, we were hearing voices from teachers, you know, labor activists, you know, uh, you know, leftist revolutionaries who were uh, fighting this system, uh, fighting this coup and who were being targeted and assassinated by these right wing forces. And what was striking to me was that uh, back then, a secretary of state, Hillary Clinton, um, 
you know, absolutely backed the coup. The, the U.S. was one of the few countries in the world that was okay with this coup, and that is because uh, these right-wing forces were in line with U.S. business interests. Uh, and so, you know, we sowed a tremendous amount of chaos in this country, and it is no wonder that many immigrants are fleeing from that chaos right now. Um, you take another country, El Salvador, which has another long history of U.S. intervention. You know, we supported, once again, right-wing uh, paramilitary forces uh, back in the 80s and 90s. Um, and that created tremendous amount of suffering in this country. And that suffering is actually at the very root of uh, the MS-13 gang. You know, we <laughs> Trump talks about MS-13 like it just sort of came out of some dark, like, you know, Central American jungle. But actually what ended up, what led to the creation of MS-13 was the fact that many of the people who uh, ended up fleeing the incredible violence which the U.S. supported ended up coming here to this country, many of them in, in uh, L.A., and they, they were brought here into this country. Many of them did not have access to social services and support. Like a lot of poor people in poor communities, they ended up forming these gangs in order to, to, to feel a sense of, you know, community and everything. And these gangs, to be clear, were awful, you know, did some awful, awful things. But then what ended up happening was, of course, many of these people who are in these MS-13 gangs, because of their crimes, were then deported back to El Salvador and in El Salvador, they've been increasing in their level of violence and and um, and, you know, cruelty to, to the people back there. And that's led to another wave, yet another wave of immigrants fleeing El Salvador to come back into the country. So you can get a sense of like the 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 cycle of, of violence, you know, that is sown by U.S. foreign policy. And we can't have an honest conversation about immigration unless we we think about you know the, the role that the u.s has played in sowing this amount of violence and sadly you don't hear a lot of that in you know even in quote-unquote liberal out, outlets like msnbc you know you hear uh you know some i think stories about how you know immigrant uh, children need to be with their parents and that's wonderful and that's good but it's still the focus of the analysis is still on the parents and whether or not they're guilty, you know, whereas we should really be uh, taking a, a lens and sort of pulling back and asking ourselves, how did we get to a point where these immigrants are, are feeling like they are in such a level of desperation that they need to leave their countries? And as an undocumented person and activist, I can tell you there's a there are a lot of myths that a lot of U.S. citizens have about immigrants there's a lot of people who are who say uh that like well you know we need to understand that most people really want to come to this country because it's such a wonderful country in fact it's funny because it just i just remembered an event that happened to me a couple of years ago when i was in this immigration uh sort of conference and there was a a u.s citizen ally who was in a group with us when we were talking about immigration reform and all of the pluses and minuses and everything but at some point during the this conference that we had, he said something like, like, well, you know, we need to remember, like a lot of people want to come to this country because it's so great and it's so abundant and all of that stuff. And this man from El Salvador specifically, specifically rose up and he was furious and he said, I did not want to come to your goddamn country. <laughs> you know, like I did not want to come here. I am only here 
you know, because your country supported, you know, the, the type of violence that forced me out of my country. I want to be back in El Salvador right now, but because of your government, you know, I have to be here. And there are tons of, of undocumented people whom I've uh, encountered who share with me very similar things, whether you're talking about El Salvador, Honduras, you know, Mexico, all these countries who say, I didn't want to be here. I didn't want to come here. This was not some kind of like pleasure, you know, trip that I took here. I came here because it was, uh, you know, a last resort. I want to be back with my family, you know. Um, so that's that's important to note. Absolutely. And the other part of that, too, is that what you've just described is almost a universal uh, truth, because the reality is that um, everything that we've just said about these countries in Central America is very much uh, also true for the uh, refugees fleeing places like the Middle East and uh, North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa, trying to make it to Europe, trying to make it to wherever they can. Uh, those people aren't leaving their countries because they hate their countries and they, and they, they hate their villages and whatever they're leaving because they have no other option and so the and, and frankly they have no other option because of the uh, neo-colonial and imperial policies of the European and North American powers so um, ultimately this uh, linkage between immigration and foreign policy these things are inextricably linked and you're absolutely right liberals don't want to talk about that because to talk about that in one sense means that it's not that you're absolving trust Trump and the Republicans, but rather you're broadening the responsibility and broadening the structural understanding for people to realize that this is a system, that it has uh, a, a quote unquote, a liberal aspect to it and a conservative aspect to it. But that system mm -hmm. remains in place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think one of the, the problems that organizers are going to face as they deal with this crisis and many other crises is the fact that there is a tremendous amount of liberal complicity in all of this, whether you're talking about the liberal complicity in getting us to this moment of immigration enforcement with uh, Democrats, you know, having caved on enforcement over and over and over again to the point that uh, they've allowed for the criminalization of, of most immigrants, you know, in order to protect, quote unquote, deserving immigrants. And that means, you know, documented folks and dreamers with, with high school and college educations, you know, only the cream of the crop, right? Uh, but whether it's liberal complicity in immigration or also, and I think more importantly, liberal complicity in, in foreign policy, uh, whether you're talking about Obama, yes, exactly you know, right. Hillary Clinton, um, you know, they, I agree with you. This is, these are two sides of the, the imperialistic, uh, imperialist state. In fact, you know, I remember when Obama was elected, I had this kind of uh, dual moment as a black immigrant, you know, um, because, you know, and I, I need to be real as someone who 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 criticized Obama for eight years. When I saw uh, that beautiful black family on Inauguration Day sort of stepping out, you know, onto into the crowd and like, you know, I have a black nephew and a black niece and i mean i teared up i was like this is a beautiful moment but i remember the next day like thinking to myself okay well now we have the black face of the a brutal you know imperialistic u.s empire you know like nothing has really structurally changed here and clearly he's going to participate in some of some of this and he proved, you know, that he was willing to do so with, you know, calculated drone strikes, for example. I, I'm still, 
I'm still kind of impressed at the fact that his branding is so strong that even when the New York Times came out with, I think, some damning articles about him um, really, you know, like choosing sort of drone drone strike targets and and pushing policies that um, that made it so it was clear that we were going to unfortunately kill uh, innocent people, that we were going to cause clear collateral damage. Still, in a lot of people's minds, especially in liberal people's minds, he's somehow this, this you know, this peaceful person. Um, you know, what's interesting about that, I, I read the piece, I know exactly what you're talking about. It was a, it was a centerpiece uh, portrait profile, whatever, of Obama in 2012. It was about, I would say, six months before the election versus Romney. And the whole mm-hmm. piece was about basically saying, see, Obama's tough. Obama is tough. He is he is not some wimp. He will kill mm-hmm. people just like we want our presidents to do. And I remember thinking to myself, this is this is what liberal America is all about. It is about out killing their Republican mm-hmm counterparts. It's about demonstrating that they're not weak. It's about demonstrating that they can be just as imperialistic and just as vicious as their Republican counterparts. And it was frankly something that I I agree with you. It should have been pretty damning. It should have cast him in a very, very negative light. And in fact, if anything, it propped him up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's what liberals do, you know, whether on this issue or any other. I mean, let's bring it back once again to the immigration issue. Uh, I know why Obama made that decision in 2014 to uh, establish family detention and also to to speed up the deportation of of um, uh, immigrant children back then. That was because he was making a calculation based on the, the two party system. And as much as I can't stand this two party system, I feel like I've studied it enough to understand it. As an immigrant, I remember like having this flash of understanding about what was going to happen. Because back then what was happening was that um, immigrant activists and some folks on the serious progressive left were pushing Obama on expanding the the DACA program to not just um, children, but to people who were older, frankly, to people like me. I, I, I don't qualify for DACA because I was too old by the time they established DACA. Um, so he was being pressured on the left flank by activists like that. But he was also, you know, obviously getting all the attacks from the Republicans about how he was soft on, you know, immigrants and how he was an amnesty president, you know, and all of that stuff. And I remember thinking to myself, I know exactly what he's going to do in order to prove his, you know, tough on the border credentials. He's going to be super harsh on these immigrant children to to prove that he's he's hard on that. And then, you know, then he's going to he's going to push for the expansion of DACA, which he eventually did, even though it got killed in the courts. And so he made that calculation in a very typical liberal way. I think that, you know, whether you're talking about him trying to prove his stuff on the border credentials or Bill Clinton, you know, back in the 90s, trying to prove that he was tough on crime, you know, and, and pushing, you know, for more police officers in the streets uh, liberals always seem to succumb to this temptation of kind of like, we can prove we're tougher than the Republicans in order to prove that we're not wusses. You know, there's something almost like patriarchal about it, right? Like this sense of like, you're not going to like out macho me, you know, we're going to prove how much we can inflict just as much pain on people as Republicans do. And that 
leads us to ever more rightward policies, you know, and that's that's why I think we need something more. We, we simply can't rely on Democrats to, to get us out of this crisis. You know, we need uh, organizers who are solidly leftist in their principles in order to get us out of this crisis because there's too much liberal complicity in having gotten us to this, you know, awful uh, political moment. I couldn't agree more. You know, it's interesting because we find ourselves in a very, um, I would say, uh, unenviable position because on the one hand, what you and I are just describing, these sort of truths about Democrats and liberals, um, you know, and and sort of the structural and and, and comprehensive nature of this anti-immigrant system, it's an absolutely essential element to talk about. At the very same time, there are some people on the left who exclusively talk about that because they and they do it in 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 context of what's happening today, which I also find really distasteful and really unproductive. So it goes something like this. Trump is detaining children and children are disappearing. And they say, this is horrible. But, you know, Obama did the same thing. And so Mm -hmm. did Clinton. And so did Bush. Now, the ultimate effect of that, in my opinion, is to minimize the horror of what we're witnessing right now. Because at that point, you're basically saying, oh, so this has been basically going on for 30 plus years. All right, I guess. Okay, fine. I'll change the channel. In other words, that there we lack a sense of urgency when we focus exclusively on the fact that nothing has changed when in fact a lot has changed as you just mentioned this is accelerating this is becoming more vicious it's becoming more comprehensive it's becoming more brutal it's becoming you know all of these things under trump so I'm sort of torn between, yes, we talk about Obama and Clinton and how the Democrats are you know, complicit in all of this and liberals are complicit, but we don't do that to the exclusion of recognizing the brutality of the reality that we're witnessing now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, because I, I, someone has been doing this work for a while. I've been tempted myself, you know, because I've been, to be honest, like re-triggered by some of these images. You know, it's brought me back to 2014 and it's been really hard. And there's a piece of me that feels a responsibility to talk about how we got here, to talk about Obama and all of that. Yet at the same time, once again, this is this is worse than anything I've ever seen. And when as organizers and as activists, our job is to give people a vision as to how to move forward. You know, our job is not simply to simply be like, well, this has been going on forever. So let's just, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. Our job is to point out, to to use the fact, I think, that right now, because Trump has pushed the envelope to such a degree that even people, many people in his own party, you know, are coming out and saying this is atrocious. Now that we have the public's attention, let's sort of slowly expose them to the broader complexity of this system. And also let's point out the victories. Like, you know, I'm thinking about the, the, the fights around family detention. Like I said, Obama would have expanded family detention if it weren't for activists and organizers who sued the administration and pushed back and won. You know, uh, a group that has been doing an amazing uh, job on this is grassroots uh, leadership. I think they're out of Texas. Uh, And they were successful in pushing back against family detention. We need to reach out to those successful organizers and activists who have been able to move the system in a positive direction 
and learn from their wisdom, learn from their tactics and organizing and get people to understand we can still push back against this. It's not this amorphous blob that is simply going to crush us because there's nothing we can do. That's not true. There have been a tremendous amount of victories along the way, and it is incumbent upon us to remember what those victories have been, remember what the tactics that have worked, the tactics that don't work, and and get to work. And to be honest, all of this stuff is super exhausting. Like I, in my career, you know, as an organizer, I pretty much I burned out like, you know, three times in my life. Uh, I'm very open about the fact that like, you know, seeking mental health counseling has really helped me to survive this whole process because it's very hard. I think that if you're in a place when all you are being is reactive and angry, that's absolutely fine. You know, get some rest, step away from the fight, step away from the struggle for a little bit, take care of yourself. But then once you get back into organizing space, you need to be forward thinking. You need to be thinking about how do we move things forward? How do we energize and inspire people? Uh, it's not about browbeating people. It's not about being more woke, you know, quote unquote, than other people. It's about getting people to understand, yes, all of this stuff is bad, but here are the tools, you know, in our arsenal, in our disposal to fight back against this, you know, and let's let's use those tools, you know, including the direct action um, and, and everything, you know, I mean, if you think that you, what you can do is write to your congressperson, that's fine. You know, we can talk about different tactics, but I think that everyone should be encouraged to participate in doing something. Uh, I, I don't like this idea that somehow there's nothing that we can do because it's been happening for forever. All of these systems are super, uh, recent from a historical perspective, you know, immigrant detention was not something that was really of use until maybe the early 80s or so. And back then it was still used in very small ways. Even our problem of mass incarceration as a whole really didn't kick kick off until like the, the mid 70s or so. These are all recent historical phenomena. We can push back against these things. It's just that we need to be realistic that it's going to take a long time. You know, I certainly have understood, you know, once I realized sort of the type of work that I wanted to do, that this was going to be lifelong work. You know, you need to be humble enough to realize that, like, it is going to take a lot and there are going to be victories and there are going to be setbacks and it's hard work, but it is worth it because I certainly don't want to sit around and be okay with a country that is okay with, like, you know, jailing, you know, babies and families. Like, that's unacceptable and that's not going to happen on my watch. And I think that we need the... Uh, to activate people and to get them to understand their sense of agency against the system. Absolutely. And I also think that um, really unity in these in struggles is really key because one of the things that I find especially toxic is uh, this kind of um, – well, a couple of different things. One is uh, this tendency that a lot of people that I that 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 I well, I don't want to say a lot of people that I know, but but some of the people that I know and encounter on the left have this tendency to late shame people. Well, where were you when Obama was the president? Where were you when Obama was deporting these people? Where were you when blah 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 blah? Well, the reality is those people, and and it's a valid point, but those people are there now. 
Mm-hmm. And it's your responsibility to work with them and to bring them along and to help them to understand and to, to radicalize them and to mobilize them and so forth. I, I think that this kind of late shaming uh, activism serves no purpose. And it, it, if anything, it is highly destructive and toxic. The other the other thing that I find is, is also pretty toxic is this kind of uh, it's almost like a pissing contest of oppression. Right. Mm-hmm. Where where, you know, some groups, including people that I that I know, um, you know, will say, well, this is this is horrible but you know I mean, black people have been locked up in cages for centuries. Uh, what about what about you know our African American young people who are locked in the American Gulag and all of these things, which are all of course true. But I don't see that these things need to be you know in set in opposition to each other. Rather, you know, it's I think it's our responsibility to kind of put it into a more comprehensive understanding that the kinds of oppression that African Americans uh, live with and and have lived with for centuries now that that oppression is unique to black Americans, but it's also an extension of the kind of oppression that we see against other groups. And this kind of weird sort of uh, opposition between these two, I find really, really difficult to tolerate. Yeah, absolutely. And as an undocumented and black person, you know, I I feel a a special um, responsibility to think about the systemic issues here and to not play the oppression Olympics and to think about how this is um, how this is an opportunity to think about the system in a holistic way that ties in all of the intersections. You know, as I've been thinking about the atrocities at the border happening right now, you know, people are are angry about family separation at the border, which they should be. But you know, when I step back and I thought about it, I'm like, well. You know, family separation, what does that mean? I mean, it's it's part of the DNA of this country, right? Like whenever uh, someone is deported, that's family separation. Whenever someone is incarcerated, whether they're U.S. citizens or not, that's family separation. There's the, you know, there's the, the history of Native Americans being put in borders uh, in boarding schools. That's family separation. That's there's obviously slavery. That's family separation. Um we need to really be courageous enough to look at the history of this country, to be able to, to, to look at all of these things and to think about how do we reevaluate who we actually want to be now. And I even say we, it's funny, because I've been here in this country so long that I forget that I'm not even a citizen. When I say we, I'm like the state, right? But, but what I mean is, you know, there some people will point to one oppression over the other. I think that this is actually not just a a bad tactic, but I think it is, uh, it's not going to lead us towards liberation. I think that we need to bring in all of these different oppressions and to think beyond our own personal stories and our own personal trauma. In fact, um, I had this epiphany a couple of years ago when I was uh, doing organizing specifically on immigration. One of the things that I really lamented and I still lament is the fact that as an undocumented person, I don't have access to health care. Uh, but then it occurred to me, I'm like, I know plenty of U.S. citizens who don't have access to health care. Like this is not a question about even citizenship. This is about creating like deserving poor versus undeserving poor. 
And so I committed myself back then to fighting like I'm not just fighting for the rights of immigrants to have access to health care. I'm fighting for poor U.S. citizens and poor or poor workers to have access to health care. We, we need to expand our definition of who is worthy. We need to expand our understanding of our neighbors and the people uh, um, across the aisle, you know, who are struggling and suffering. And, you know, I mean, I don't mean to, to, to sound like a hippie here too much, but like there's even though I'm super angry at the anti-immigrant crowd, like I've spoken to a lot of anti-immigrants. I've spoken to Trump supporters, you know, who have shared with me some of their stories of feeling like they're angry about losing out in this country. They're angry about not having access to health care, not being able to find jobs and all of that stuff. And I, I get that. It's just that they're diagnosis or their solution is to go after people who have less power than them. Uh, my goal as an organizer is not to seek to destroy these people or anything like that. My job is to get them to understand, actually, you're more in solidarity with undocumented people than you think you should be. In fact, I think that undocumented uh, workers and poor U.S. workers should be in solidarity uh, because they're both struggling um, because of the same economic policies that this this country has pushed you know i mean one of the reasons for this this migration crisis that we had recently in mexico that was a result of the north american free trade agreement you know the the north american free trade agreement allowed for corporations to move across the globe cross borders in order to to, to seek cheaper and cheaper labor and those corporations many of those corporations first ended up in mexico but then once the wages started to rise up in Mexico, they went all the way to Southeast Asia. And a lot of people in Mexico were then left without jobs in the cities and they migrated north in order to find those jobs. And so, you know, there's this kind of like um, pitting poor U.S. workers against poor undocumented workers when both of those groups uh, are suffering from the results of, of, of a policy of economic policy that the U.S. has been exporting. And I think instead of, of allowing sort of the masters, quote unquote, to play this game of divide and conquer between, uh, you know, poor undocumented labor and poor U.S. labor, we need to, to create narratives of solidarity so that people understand that their, their, you know, their enemy is not Jose, the janitor, you know, who works at their school. That's not their enemy. The, the what they need to be thinking about is how is this who is this system benefiting and um, and they need to look upwards instead of downwards in terms of thinking about the people who have uh, allowed for their lives to to get so hard. And in fact, I actually understand the Trump backlash from an economic point of view. Uh, you're dealing with a lot of white folks, to be honest, uh, a lot of white folks, especially a lot of white men who are starting to realize what a lot of people in communities of color have known for a long time, which is that the American dream is bullshit, <laughs> that the American dream is, is does not work, that you can get an education, you could work several jobs, and you're still going to struggle to make ends meet. Communities of color have known that for a long time, but it is a shock to the system of a lot of, of white people, to be honest. And and I think there's a, a certain number of white folks right now who are feeling like, well, it's not fair. These people are taking away from my opportunity. Instead, they need to understand, like, no, you need to join in solidarity with us because you are only now starting to realize what a lot of people 
a lot of working class folks have realized for a long time, especially working class folks of color, which is that the American dream isn't working and we need to 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 fight against the, the corporations, you know, who have made it so hard for us to be able to have um, access to be able to make a, a decent living. Um, so, I mean, that's that's the kind of future that I hope that we'll get to. But that's where, you know, race is such an important uh, factor. Unfortunately, I think a lot of white folks um, have been trained to see themselves as other than than people in communities of color and have, have been trained to think of communities of color as moochers, you know, uh, I think it's very interesting that very often, and this includes even in the liberal media, when people talk about the working class, they're really talking about the white working class. <laughs> they're really not talking about like the black working class that's been there forever. So, you know, we need to complicate some of those narratives so that people get to understand that we need to work towards, you know, economic and class solidarity. I could not possibly agree more. That was excellent, excellent rundown of the of those issues. And um, I wish we had more time, but we are out of time. Um, I want to thank you for coming on the show again. Listeners, um, Ali Wayne is on the steering committee of the Black Immigration Network. He's a peace activist with the Syracuse Peace Council in upstate New York. He is a wealth of information. I recommend you follow him on Facebook. Ali, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. And thank you as always, listeners, and we will chat again real soon.